Today, what we're doing today is we are returning back to Romans in July. I ended with Romans 9 just before I went on sabbatical the month of August. And so we should be moving forward into Romans 10. But I want to talk a little bit about Romans 9, 10, and 11 because these three books are are, are, our theme, their theme in the book of Romans. And as, as Paul, the person who wrote the letter of Romans, he is making some major theological points in the book of Romans. It has a theme. And when you get to chapter 9, 9, 10, and 11 has a very specific theme in the book of Romans. And one of the, the themes is what people have often referred to as the doctrine of election, God's choosing of people, and particularly, most specifically, choosing the nation of Israel, but then also allowing the Gentiles to be a part of the plan of salvation. Now, to understand what is being talked about, because Romans 9 has a particular emphasis, Romans 10 builds on that, and then Romans 11 culminates on that. The concern in these three passages is how did the Gentiles come to be saved? Why are they a part of the plan of salvation? And then what about the Jewish people? We thought the Jews were specifically God's people. And so throughout the letter, Paul has been dealing with these two kind of Israels. And to understand the argument that's being made in these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, we have to understand Something about who Israel is. There's two kinds of Israels in this letter. There's an ethnic Israel that are people who are physical descendants of Abraham. So if they go back, Abraham would be like their great, 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 great grandfather. Right? They're physical descendants of Abraham. And those are the people who Up to this point, before Jesus had primarily been the people that God had chosen to believe and be his people. And then Jesus comes, and then all of a sudden, the message of salvation is going to some people who are not ethnic Israel. These would be called, in a sense, spiritual Israel, and these are biblical descendants of Israel. Abraham by faith. So you have the physical descendants, and then you have the biblical, the spiritual descendants, people who, like Abraham, believe. The challenge is if you were a Jew, you didn't have the category that there was a spiritual component to who would it meant to be a Jew, to be an Israelite. In your mind, it was we are God's people, and Jesus comes and says, nope, The message of salvation is open to not just the nation of Israel, but to all other nations summarized by one word, Gentiles. The challenge, which Paul begins to lay out in Romans 9, is that not all the people who are physical descendants of Abraham are actually saved. Not all the people who are. And there are people who were never physical descendants of Abraham who were actually saved. So the tension is, well, how did this happen? Why did this happen? Essentially, what Paul has been arguing for is 
Abrahamic faith is greater than Abrahamic flesh. So Israel has to be seen by those who have the same faith, not the same flesh. It's Christ's blood, not Abraham's blood, that makes you family. Now, here's a challenge with these verses, particularly Romans 9. Often, in our day and age in particular, but more so even before us, these chapters, especially Romans 9, they are extrapolated from the whole argument in the book to make a theological point about God choosing some and not others. And while that's partially true, Romans 9 is making a much bigger picture point about salvation. It's not just that God individually chooses some and not others. The bigger picture point is God decides who Israel is. That's God's decision. And he decides it based on his own mercy and nothing else. Now, Paul is building on what he said in earlier chapters. This isn't a new concept. Now, again, people extrapolate Romans 9 and make it something else, but, but Paul has been building on this reality throughout the book of Romans, that faith is greater than flesh. Abrahamic faith, faith in Abraham is greater than the flesh of Abraham. In Romans chapter 2, he makes this very point about who a Jew is. It's about God is deciding and changing at least from their experience, what they thought a Jew really meant. And here's what Paul says in Romans 2, 28 and 29. He says this, For a person is not a Jew outwardly, the flesh. And true circumcision, the cutting of the flesh, is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart. So you see, he's making this distinction. The Jews are not just people who are physical descendants of Abraham. That's circumcision in the flesh. And that was apparently true up to some point, although we know just from the book of Ruth that throughout the scriptures, God had been placing non-Jewish people as significant in the plan, the redemptive plan of salvation. You have people like Rahab the prostitute who was in the lineage of Christ. You have Ruth the Moabite who was in the lineage of Christ. So we see that if Exodus 12, when you see all of these people leave, the Jews leave from slavery of Egypt, you'll see a phrase that says, and a mixed multitude left with them. So even in the beginning of Israel being taken out of captivity from Egypt, there were non-Israelites who went to be a part of the plan of salvation. So Paul is just reemphasizing a truth that has already existed, but making sure they understand this is the reality now, that what you thought a Jew was, and it's very similar to Jesus saying stuff like this. You have heard it was said that if you kill someone, it's murder. But I say, if you're angry at your brother in his heart, it wasn't that he was giving a new teaching. As we heard last week, there's only one new teaching that Jesus gave, which was the love as he, as he loved. It's not a new teaching. It's let me clarify the significance of what that law means. 
Paul is clarifying the significance of who God's people are. And he says that it's of the heart. On the contrary, Romans 2.29, on the contrary, a person is a Jew who was one inwardly. And circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not the letter, meaning the law. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. He goes on to talk about this. What is who's justified? How can you be justified, made righteous before God? He says in Romans 3, 28 through 30, he says this, For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. He's making this distinction because if you were Jewish, you believed the Mosaic law and you tried to obey all the commands of the law. And then when Jesus comes, some people still think, okay, we got to believe in Jesus, but we still keep the law. And Paul is making an argument. No, 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 no. Jesus perfected. He kept the law perfectly. We can't do that. So we need to have faith in him to genuinely be saved, to be one of the descendants of Abraham, the true Israel. It says in verse 29, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there was one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Paul's building on this argument that, listen, this is who a real Jew is. It's who a real Jew is. Now, up to this point, Paul has not explained why the Gentiles are considered Jews, why circumcision of, uh, of the heart is the issue. He's just telling us right now that this is what it is, that a Jew, a Jew is not one outwardly physical descendant, but one inwardly spiritual, that the uncircumcised who were the Gentiles are now considered spiritually circumcised because they have faith in Jesus. And there are those who've been physically circumcised that reject Jesus who are no longer the people of God. It's not just your ethnicity. In our day and age, we do the same thing, but a little bit differently, right? Particularly in a black community. Now, I'm black, but there are aspects about my blackness that we would say make me more black than someone else, right? Like, we all know, if you've seen The Fresh Prince, we all know of, like, who Carlton is, right? There are times when I've made a distinction that I'm black, but I'm not Carlton. And people laugh because that's a different kind of black dude. I'm a different kind of black dude. We make those distinctions even in our community. You make distinctions, well, he's really like this, but this, yeah, he's that, but he's really black, black. It's the same thing here, but with more significance. Yeah, they're Jews, but they're not really like Jews, Jews. They're, they're, it's a little different. Paul continues on this logic in Romans 4. Each of these chapters, he just goes right on into it. Talking about Abraham specifically, he says this in Romans 4, 13 through 18. He says, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. If those are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise is nullified. Here's what he's saying. That Abraham was considered righteous. He believed God in Genesis 15, 6 and was considered righteous. That was about six, seven hundred years before the Mosaic law even started. So what he's getting at is, look, Abraham was righteous before the law was even established. So it can't be that the law is what makes people righteous before God. 
when the patriarch of our faith, the father of our faith, was considered righteous before the law even existed. He says, if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise is nullified. And in, in, in modern-day vernacular, essentially, if people who can keep the law are the sons of God, then what did Jesus have to come for? If it were possible to obey God without perfectly, then what Jesus didn't need to come. We might have needed to preach a little bit different and try a little bit harder, but the fact that Jesus came after thousands of years was indicative that you just lack the ability to keep the law. There are some people who are gollier than others, but ultimately all of you can't do it. So if I can keep the law and be justified before God, then faith is, is not a void. Why do I need to have faith in Jesus? Modern day, why do I need to believe in God? Like, I'm a good person. I don't steal. I don't lie. I, like, never hurt anyone. I don't. The point he's making is that, look, righteousness, if you want to be seen as not guilty before God, it has to be by faith in Jesus. It can't be by your ability to be obedient because you're going to fail miserably, consistently. And God, instead of punishing us, consistently making our lives miserable, he says, I'm going to punish my son instead. In verse 13, because the law produces wrath and where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is why the promise is by faith so that it may be according to grace to guarantee it to all the descendants, not only to the ones who is of the law, but also the one who is of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, not just the Jews, many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, the one who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. Here's what he's saying is that Abraham was promised that he would be the father of many nations. He's interpreting that to say that it wasn't just the Jews that he was the father of, but that many nations, because many people outside of the ethnic, the physical nation of Israel would also believe the way he believed. He didn't understand the fullness of it, but they would believe in the message. We, many of us, almost all of us, are not ethnic Jews in this place. So we are the fulfillment of what he's saying here, that we believe the gospel. And everyone in here who's a genuine Christian believes that when you die, even though you sin consistently, you believe you're going to go to heaven when you die because God forgives you for your sins, even though you have no emotional proof of that. It's all theological, and it's all faith and hope. And biblically, God says that is enough. He said to Thomas, look at the holes in my hands and the hole in my side. He said, you believe because you see, but blessed are those who do not see me physically and believe. He's talking about us. He says in verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, the one who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. He believed, hoping against hope, that he became the father of many nations. According to what had been spoken, so will your descendants be. They will be like you, having faith. Having faith. 
He's been making this point up throughout the letter. But what he never did was explain how that happened. He's just acknowledging that the Gentiles or those who believe in faith, who are not physical descendants, are the people of God. But he never explains how that happens. What's the mechanism for that? How, what, if you were a Jew, you could be like, wait a minute. Well, Paul, I have a question. So how did the Gentiles become like us? By just faith? Like, can you explain? If there was a Q&A, they'd be asking them that question. Can you explain a little bit more, please? Because we've been the descendants of Abraham our whole lives. Remember the Pharisees that said, man, our father is Abraham. Remember that? John said, Jesus said, if Abraham were your father, you would believe. Your father's actually the devil. Oh, Jesus was gangster. Don't, don't have don't, all, this, all this meek and mild Jesus who can't. No, Jesus said, I came to bring uh, not peace but a sword. And truth sometimes is divisive. So he's been explaining up to the point in the book, he peppers it some that this is what is the reality. But then when he gets to Romans 9, he explains this is how this manifests. Let me explain how this happens. Let me explain why some Jews are, that are physical descendants of, of Israel and Abraham do not necessarily are, are the people of God. Let me explain how those who have been uncircumcised and people who are Gentiles are actually included. Now he starts to explain what he's getting at. And the theology of these chapters is, is, is not written. These chapters aren't written to make a theologically distinctive point over who has sound doctrine and who doesn't. That's not the purpose of these chapters. The purpose, what Paul is trying to do, is to explain how and why the Gentiles have salvation that was explicitly given to the Jews, but also the Jews will still experience that same salvation. They haven't been cast out altogether. That's the point of all this theology. Why is this important to Paul? Let's remember who Paul is. In Acts chapter 9, here's what we read about Paul. We understand, we don't know the story, but I'm going to read this because it's important to know who Paul is, why he takes this very seriously. It says this in Acts 9, beginning of verse 1. Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder. He was called Saul at one point. Saul was still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, which is what they call Christianity at first, the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul since he is praying there. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, 
I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Now, let me pause there for a second. When you read situations like this, this happening, it's important to really see what's, what's going on here, one, practically speaking. So here is a man who got a vision from the Lord, knew it was the Lord because he said, I'm here, Lord. The Lord gives him a command, and he was like, hold on, Lord. Are you sure? Like, this is the Paul, this is the dude that's here to arrest us. Like, this is the guy you want me to, like, he's, he's basically telling the Lord that the Lord doesn't know who this man is. This is important because, and this is a practical thing, not necessarily the theological, but then look how God interacts with his children. God's not offended when you have some questions, right? God will listen to you. Now, he may not talk to you in a vision. If he starts telling me you're having these vision conversations, I might be a little concerned, especially depending on what them visions say. But God is not afraid to deal with the questions or concerns of his people because he knows what we know and what we don't know. That's why the Psalms have a lot of times when you're questioning God, God, how long, oh, Lord? Where are you, Lord? He's not offended at those things. Remember that when you struggle to pray. You don't have to be dignified. You just have to be honest. I love these kinds of situations. Ananias is telling the Lord something he already knows. The Lord responds in verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, listen to these words. For this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, the Gospels are four. There are 27 books in the New Testament. The Gospels make up four, and the book of Acts make up five. That leaves 22 books left. In those 22 books, the word Gentiles is used 52 times. Paul uses them 50. And only one other book uses them twice. First Peter mentions the Gentiles. He said this, First Peter 2.12. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. 1 Peter 4, 3. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles chose to do, carrying on an unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. Those are the only two times apart from the other 50 from, Revelation, from Roman to Revelations. Romans to Revelations. The 52 times that the Gentiles are mentioned, Paul mentions them 50 times. The only other one was Peter twice that we just read. So when God said that Paul was going to be the apostle to the Gentiles, he meant it. And Paul took it seriously. He took the responsibility seriously. In fact, he opens the letter of Romans like this. Romans 1, chapters, verses 1 through 6. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed to, the, to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. Now, I just said that 
Paul is the only one who mentions the Gentiles in the New Testament from Romans to Revelations except the two times that Peter did. So that means Peter is the only one who mentions how the Gentiles are incorporated into salvation. He's the only one. When Peter talked about it, we just read it. It had nothing to do with the soteriological nature of the Gentiles. He's just talking about not being like them and being among them. Paul is the only one who explains how the Gentiles and how the Jews are now in the family of God together. And his main point is that it was God's choice to allow the Gentiles to be a part of the plan of salvation. Now, as I said at the beginning, a lot of people today and age will argue over this doctrine that's called election, God choosing. It's causing a lot of conflict in the church. People will say you're not a believer unless you're a Calvinist, and if you're many of these, these, these categories. I think people have forgotten like 1 Peter 3, when he's, 1 Corinthians 3, when he said, I'm with Paul, I'm with Apollos. I'm with Peter. Aren't you acting worldly? The thing we have to try to understand is the reason. What's the reason that Paul is explaining this? He's the only one that explains this reality. He's the only one that explains the significance of the Gentiles and Jews and election and choosing and all of it. So what is his purpose? Was his purpose to make theological distinctions? I don't think so. That's not, it's not wrong to have them, but I think it is wrong to be divisive over them. This is a sidebar. If your theology makes you self-righteous and unloving, then it's not a good theology. Or it's not a good application of your theology. Because there's no theology that should make us unloving towards anyone. Back to our regularly scheduled program. The reason why he is explaining this here in Romans 9 and in Ephesians and even in Colossians, he's explaining this so the Jews and the Gentiles understand high and wild salvation includes both of them. That's the purpose of explaining the doctrine of election is explaining how the, that's the sole purpose is explaining how the Jews and the Gentiles have come together. This is why no one else in the New Testament covers this topic. No one else in the New Testament, no other writers cover this topic at all. They don't even seem to care about whether you believe you were chosen or chose by God. They don't even seem to, they seem to ignore it. Paul does it because Paul has the responsibility to make sure that the church, the Gentiles, who have never been a part of God's people as a collective whole, understand their purpose. Let's peek real quick at Ephesians just to see what he does in Ephesians chapter 2. After chapter 1, him explaining about that God before the foundation of the world has chosen us to believe in Jesus and he's explaining this reality. Then in chapter 2, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and he's explaining that reality. Then he gets to verse 11 in chapter 2. We're going to carry on through chapter 3 to see the reason. This is, and he uses the same logic in Colossians to explain this particular doctrine. Here's Paul's motive for teaching the doctrine of election. He says this, so then in verse 11, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by, by those called the circumcised, 
which is done in the flesh by human hands. At the time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have brought near, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. So he tears down the wall of hostility. And a lot of us have built it back up. He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations that he might create in himself one new man from the two. The Jews and Gentiles, one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. Now, understand, when he's talking about the hostility, he's talking about the hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. He even says, like, you used to be called the uncircumcised by the circumcised. So they would, I mean, it's almost like teasing each other. Yeah, but you're uncircumcised, though. You ain't one of God's people, though. You ever had someone? Well, never mind. You just have people call you out for your, for, your, for, your, for your character, right, as a Christian. And you think, well, you, you know, you've been self-right. Well, I've been forgiven. You now, you're you going to hell when you die. None of y'all never said a thought that, though. All right, verse 16. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. So far away is the Gentiles, near are the Jews. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. And the whole building being put together grows into, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in his spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming you have heard about the administration of God's grace that, God, that he gave me for you. The mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written above. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This is what he's calling this, the mystery of Christ, is this. This was not made known to people in other generations as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Listen to what he's saying. The mystery that now is revealed. He's calling this like the main thing. This mystery that has been revealed that they didn't get in the Old Testament. That I'm now allowed to share the great mystery is what? The Gentiles experience salvation. They're a part of the plan of redemption. This is the great mystery that Paul is talking about. Many of us, it's not mysterious to us because we're far on the other side of it. But in this moment, this was a huge deal. This was a big deal. And to him, he said, look, he has been chosen to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ. That's the great mystery. This is why 
I'm even talking about the doctrine of election. I'm talking about it so you understand that God chose the Gentiles to be a part of the plan of salvation before the foundation of the world. It's bigger than just, did God choose you or not? That's not the doctrinal point that he's making. It doesn't mean there's not something to consider. It just means the point that he's making is the mystery is not you were chosen and you might not be. And let's argue over, did you have free will or, or, or election? The point is the Gentiles, all of us, non-Jewish people, God chose before the foundation of the world to believe. That's the mystery that I'm here to proclaim. He uses the same language in Colossians. Paul's giving us his motive for why he's explaining this doctrine. And let me assure you, don't trust me. Go study yourself. You will not find any explanation by any other theologian in the New Testament, in a credible translation, except Paul. Because it has a purpose. I'm saying this for a reason, because I see so much division over this doctrine today. There's, there's so much division over how did I come to believe more than how do I behave. If my maturity is measured by what I believe more than how I behave, then I misunderstand what sound doctrine is in the Bible. Let me just finish this. He says this in verse 8, this grace was given to me to the least of all the saints to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for all ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church of the rulers and, and authorities in the heavens. In other words, he's saying this revelation is so that all people can know. All people can know, listen to this, may be known the, the multifaceted wisdom. See, the challenge with this stuff is we don't understand. We, not, we don't live in a religious culture. It's somewhat religious, but not like this. It's not the same thing. So for them, religion was very, very serious. It was life. For us, we may or may not listen to the message. We may or may not read our Bibles. We may or may not. They didn't live like this. For them, they didn't have the technology to be distracted. They had this. Religion was all they had, so it was very significant. So when Paul is describing this, it's such a big deal to him. It's like, listen, this is the multifaceted wisdom of God. Think of all the things that God is wise about. All of the development of all these things. Let me tell you how important this is. The Trinity, Jesus being fully God and fully man, isn't even developed as significantly as this. It explains it. Jesus, they just assume, look, Jesus is God. Hebrews 1 tells us, John 1 tells us, Colossians. A couple verses here and there, Philippians 2. This is a significant development. That the mystery of God that he's talking about isn't even that Jesus is fully God and fully man. It, the mystery, the multifaceted wisdom is that because Jesus was fully God and fully man, that all these people, Jews and Gentiles, are a part of the plan of salvation. That's the purpose of election. Paul's excited about this. The multifaceted wisdom is that the, those Gentiles who were 
The uncircumcised are now family with us. Look at verse 10. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In him, we have boldness and confidence and access through faith in him. So then I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are for your glory. Paul's not trying to make a theologically distinctive point about free will versus sovereignty. He's making a point. He's giving us a behind-the-scenes look at the mystery of God, of choosing Israel as a nation and the inclusion of the Gentiles into the plan of salvation. We're getting a behind-the-scenes look. And this is what Romans 9 begins to explain to us. How does this work? Paul makes it clear. The Gentiles are a part of the plan of salvation, but the Jews have not been forgotten, even though the Gentiles are included. And that's his theme in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Let's look at how this plays out. Romans 9. Verses 1 through 5. We're going to hit these just real big picture. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, and from them, by physical descent, listen to that, by physical descent, see, he makes a distinction. By physical descent came the Christ. That distinction is important. By physical, so Christ physically is from the same lineage as the Jews. By physical descent, it's not by spiritual descent. By physical descent came the Christ, who was God over all, praise forever. Amen. So here Paul is acknowledging at the beginning of Romans 9 his discouragement that despite the fact that the Jews have been given all the stuff from God, the law, the prophets, the, the, the covenants, the temple service, the promises, the ancestors, and even Jesus Christ, he's discouraged that still some reject him. He's discouraged by that. So much so. And he loves them so much so that he said, man, I wish I would, could give up my salvation for their, on their behalf. I love this church. I would never say I'd rather go to hell instead of any of you. I'm sorry, I just ain't trying to go. Because if God grants that promise, that reality, you're going to spend eternity thinking about all the stuff that y'all, man, no way. Paul got it. That's a different love. I love this church to death, but not that much. In Romans 9, verse 6, he says this. Now, it is not as though the word of God has failed because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Neither is it the case that all of Abraham's children are his descendants. So you see what he's saying? The word of God hasn't failed. Jesus didn't fail on the cross because not all of Israel are Israel's descendants. No, neither. Listen to what he says. Neither is it the case that all of Abraham's children are his descendants. So he's making a parallel argument. God's word didn't fail because all the Israelites don't believe. 
but it's also because they're not all descendants of Abraham. Now, they're thinking, yes, we are. We're, our, we're Abraham is our father. That's not the point Jesus is making. Yes, physically, Christ came of physical descent. But Christ didn't come to say only the physical, I'm only the physical descendant of Abraham. It's like, no, there's a deeper eternal issue here. Paul says, on the contrary, saying in verse 7, your offspring will be traced through Isaac, making a quote to Abraham. That is, not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise who are considered to be offspring. So he's talking about Abraham having Isaac and Ishmael. God promised Abraham he'd have a son. Abraham went ahead and had a son with his uh, slave Hagar. He had Ishmael, but God was like, no, 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 that's not who I promised. I made you a promise that in your old age, you and Sarah, your wife who's old, who cannot have children, would have children, and that's the promise. And that, that situation, not of the flesh, you could have had, yes, you, she was able to have children. I, I promised you that you would have a child by a woman who can't have children, so that it was clear that I was the one that made it possible. You see, most of us, we know the children are a gift from the Lord and we get pregnant and some of us get only the people who struggle to get pregnant really appreciate the gift of pregnancy. You got people who get pregnant so often they'll go ahead and kill their kids because they don't feel like dealing with the responsibilities of it. But then you have people who who struggle to get pregnant. And when they do or if they can't and they adopt, they appreciate the significance because it's not just effortless and inevitable for every woman. Or there are people who worked at it and eventually got pregnant, and man, do they get it. But many people who just can have children don't even realize the gift of it because it's just, it's just an inevitable, natural thing as a result of intercourse. But they didn't see pregnancy like that in the Bible. They thought when the Lord opened up a womb because they took religion, everything was about who the God is they believe in and whatever happens is coming from that God. So they would talk in language that for us is just normal. Oh, you're pregnant. Congratulations. Well, for them, it was the Lord opened up her womb. So when God made the promise that it would come through Israel, it had to be I got to open up her womb. I want it to be impossible in the same way I call something from nothing. It's almost like an illustration of God saying, let there be light when there was nothing. He said, let there be life when it's impossible. Let me prove I'm God by letting you get pregnant by someone you can't. And through that promise, is your, your descendants are going to be a part of that promise because you had faith that I would make you the father of many nations. This is what he's arguing for. He's trying to make the point. He's making a point. He's building on the fact that the non-Jewish uh, communities, the Gentiles, are a part of conversion, a part of salvation. He's trying to explain. He's explaining how building up. He says this in verse 9, for this is the statement of the promise. At this time I will come. Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but Rebekah conceived children through one man, our father Isaac. For though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad so that the God's purpose of election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Here's what Paul is doing. Let me prove to you that the choice of 
who becomes saved. The choice of the reality. And this is contextually, this is the Gentiles. This isn't about individual. He uses two individuals, Jacob and Esau, who are connected to a larger story of the promise made to Abraham. This isn't an extrapolated, isolated incident so that we can choose. This isn't about individual salvation. It's about God choosing one nation over another, including a nation that people thought and they thought would never become believers. Paul is starting to re-explain using the Old Testament narrative of Abraham that the Jews to which salvation belong are not Jews anatomically, but are Jews supernaturally. In the same way that, that Isaac is born supernaturally, because Abraham was too old and Sarah was too old, people who believe supernaturally are going to be a part of the promise I'm making to you, Abraham. It's a physical manifestation and an illustration. It's a visual aid for what happens when we believe. It's not like it's clear. It's not like all of a sudden the, the wall, everything gets dark and the light shines and then we answer four questions and we believe. Some of us grow up in the church and you can't even tell, like, well, I don't, I don't know exactly the moment I became a Christian. I've just kind of been in it my whole life, but I'm... It was supernatural at some point. He's making a distinction that it's faith, not flesh. And this decision of who Israel is, the real Israel, is God's. There's no one else's decision. In fact, there's nothing that anyone does for God to determine who he shows mercy to and who he has compassion towards. He says, look, verse 11, for through her sons, though her sons have not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand. Whatever that purpose is, it's this, that it's not from works, that God's choice is not from works, but from the one who calls, she was told. The older will serve the younger. Contextually, Paul is talking about the fact that the Gentiles are a part of the plan of salvation. He goes on in verse, verses 9, verses 14. He says this, so what should we say then? Is there injustice in God? Absolutely not. Why does he ask that question? Because he's, he's going after the thought that God making a decision prior to Jacob and Esau's action is somehow wrong or unjust. And he continues, for, for he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. What's the it? So then it does not depend on human will or effort. What's the it that is not dependent on human will or effort? It's God's choice of who gets to be saved. That's the it. It, so God's choice, does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. And then he uses an Old Testament example to make a point. Verse 17, for the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason so that I may display my power in you, that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth, in the whole earth. 
So then he has mercy on who he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Paul is quoting from Exodus 33, 19, in verse 15. And he says, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I am having compassion. Quotes from Exodus 9, 16, in verse 17. I raised you up for this reason, that I may display my power in you, that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. Paul is making a point that the plan of salvation belongs to God and God's choice. And if God decides to harden some, which would be to show, not show compassion or mercy, you could say, then it's his choice, it's his prerogative. But the context here is towards the Gentiles and bringing them into salvation. This isn't an argument for individual election. It's an argument for the Gentiles becoming into the fold of Christ, into the, as descendants of Abraham. After saying that he, after having this, this back and forth, he's explaining this, building this up. In verse 19, Paul addresses what people may be thinking after hearing about Pharaoh's heart being hardened and, and him hardening who he wants to harden. And so Paul says, you will say to me, therefore, what, why then does he still find fault for who resists his will? Paul understands the pushback here, though, is not individual salvation. The Jews had no problem with Pharaoh's heart being hardened. You'd be hard-pressed to find any true Hebrew, Israelite, Jewish literature that's concerned that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. They got festivals that they still worship because that happened. The Jews are not worried about Pharaoh's heart being hardened by God because it worked to their benefit. Paul understands that. He understands that pushback is really about the Gentiles being included in the plan of salvation. And he proves that in a couple verses later. That's the real pushback for this passage. It's not individual hardening of. It's man, why aren't all the Jews saved and why do the Gentiles get to be a part of it? Why are people who are ethnic Jews that have been Jews don't get to be a part of it? And why do some do? How did that happen? Well, God chose before the foundation of the world. But according to this passage, he chose it before they did anything. Anyone did anything. Jacob, I love, and Esau, I hate it. It's my decision. And so there's pushback. He anticipates pushback. Why then does he still find fault? Who resists his will? Could Pharaoh have not done what God hardened his heart to do? And Paul's answer is simply this, or verse 20, on the contrary. Who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Well, what is form? Say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery of honor and another for dishonor? These questions are challenging, right, because they seem rude to us, because they rival our definition of good and evil. We tend to think of God as just being a God of love who accepts everyone but never really allows people to be punished. We understand that, but it's somewhere in the back of our minds that, or we reserve it to the worst people in society that we determine. 
But Paul's logic is like, listen, who are we to question God's decision? That's really getting at the heart of what we define as good and evil. Because if I think it's evil for this to be wrong and God says it's wrong, then I have a problem with the one who says it's wrong. And what that means by default is that my definition of good and evil is actually more good than his definition because I disagree with that this is wrong when the Bible says that this is wrong. The irony is we accept this all the time in other ways. We accept all the time that there are differences in people. We accept that the people who sang on this stage should have been up here. We accept. There's a reason why we had auditions. Because you don't want me up there telling some great is thy faithfulness. We accept that there are athletes like LeBron James and Steph Curry. That dude has the finger of God. God put the Holy Spirit in his finger alone. That dude just shoots from like less than half, more than half court and just be making them. We accept that there are people that are faster, smarter, better looking, more intelligent. We accept all of these things. We accept all these different things. But when it comes to God deciding what he wants to do and how he wants to use people, we have a problem with it. But we accept all these other things, all these other differences. It's ironic that we're not complaining that like, man, why shouldn't I be getting paid 50 million to dump? Many of us got a two inch vertical. Should we all look the same, think the same, be the same, have the same skills? No. So God doesn't create humanity for the same purposes. As we accept there are differences in how people will be used and have, some people have better lives, have easier lives, it seems like. Born with silver spoons while some of us have to work for everything we have. I remember when I was working at Blockbuster Video a long time ago. Some of y'all don't even know about no Blockbuster Video. Shouts to the people that know about that Blockbuster Video. You know what I'm saying? Gloria raised her Hallelujah. I don't know if she was praising her. She just remembered. Shouts to the people. I used to work at Blockbuster. I loved it, man. I would just have fun. We'd, I'd go, I'd, I'd, write, I'd make up these signs. What I'd do is I'd write them with, with a marker, and then I'd Xerox them so I looked official. I remember one time, I asked about our Dig That special, and I put it on the front door when everybody walked in. And nobody asked about it until the very end. Black dude came and said, hey, what's up, man? What's up with the Dig That special, man? And I just busted out laughing. I said, man, ain't no Dig That special, man. I just wanted to, I was waiting for someone like you to ask that question. <laughs> Get some free milk duds or something. But when I was working at Blockbuster, our manager at the time had like a Chevy Cavalier car. And she had put an alarm on it. And one of the other employees who was my friend was laughing at her when he heard her press the button to put her alarm on it because it was like a cavalier. <laughs> and I'll never forget what she said with tears in her eyes. She said, you know what? That car is the only thing I've ever had on my own. I worked really hard to get that car. And it may not be a big deal to you, but that car is everything to me. That was important to her, even though it wasn't. We accept this all the time. God it's the same way we get it from him.
The chapter ends with a few Old Testament quotations from Isaiah and Hosea to make the point that God decided the Gentiles were a part of his plan. This whole chapter and all three of these chapters are dealing with the issue of the Gentiles being brought into the plan of salvation. It's not dealing with individual salvation, the individual doctrine of election, the way it's applied today. It's dealing with a much greater issue in this day and age, which was, wow, the Gentiles are a part of it. He says this, I'm going to go in verse Verse 22, and what if God wanting to display his wrath and to make his power known endure with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did this to make the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he had prepared beforehand for glory on us, the ones he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? In other words, what if God did this to show that he's actually patient by letting people who deserve wrath experience grace for a period of time? I mean, is there anyone that really deserves anything from God? Apart from what he said. Why do, why do some unbelievers live just seemingly freer and better lives than us? Why do they get to enjoy all this stuff that we don't? Why do some non-Christians just have fun? The beautiful people, most of the people that we look at in Hollywood and that we aspire their music, unless it's Christian music and even some of them are saved. Why do we, why do they get to enjoy this full life? Because this is all they have. The fullness of our lives begin the moment we say we die. We get a taste of it here, but then when we're with the Lord, then we get it. Remember the rich man and Lazarus? On earth, you, you, was, you had it. You ate good, dressed well, were respected. People, people didn't eat. The dogs used to lick his sores. But in eternity, he's in Abraham's bosom. And you're an eternal punishment. Paul wants to conclude in this particular chapter by saying this at verse 25, also, as it says in Hosea, I will, I will not, I will call not my people, my people. And she who was unloved, beloved. And it will be in the place where they were told you were not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. You know when that verse was fulfilled? At the woman at the well. Remember, they were like, our father Jacob built this well. And he said, no, 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 no. You're thinking of a place. I'm telling you right now, the person you're talking to is the reason why salvation is yours. And the next thing you know, all these Samaritans get saved. Then he goes down there for two days. These are people who were not my people in the place they will be called sons of the living God. But Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of Israelites is like the sand of the sea. Only the remnant will be saved since the Lord will execute his sentence completely and decisively on the earth. So he's saying two different things here. The Gentiles who believe in Jesus are called the sons of the living God, and God has preserved a remnant, which is a smaller number of people within a larger group. In eth- He's preserved the remnant. There are people who are ethnic Israel that also believe. And lastly, just, and just as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. What should we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes from faith. But Israel... Pursuing the law of righteousness has not achieved the righteousness of the law. 
Why is that? So in other words, so the Gentiles who've been living opposite of the Mosaic law, they get to be made righteous, and those who have been living with the Mosaic law are unrighteous? Why is that? And he concludes, because they did not pursue it by faith, but if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, look, I am putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over, and the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. Paul's laying out why the Gentiles are a part of salvation at God before, the, before they could do anything. Using Jacob and Israel, Esau, as, as an illustration. That it's my choice. It's my choice. It's God's choice. It's God's choice to allow the Gentiles to experience salvation. Paul said in Ephesians 3, this is the mystery that God's multifaceted wisdom This is not a doctrine that separates those who are sound and unsound. It's an explanation of why more than just the Jews are a part of salvation. For his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Father, as we work in two weeks, as we get to Romans 10 and work our way through 10 and 11, as we will see in your word that salvation is given to all through Jesus and that Israel's rejection had an actual purpose. Your hardening of Israel and their rejection had a real purpose. And we'll see what that purpose is. Father, until then, I pray that each of us in this room and those who are watching online, I pray that we are more grateful for the fact that we are saved than we are wrestling with the mechanism of how we were saved, whether we chose or were chosen. That's not the point of this passage. In fact, it's not even a point of contention in the Bible. Heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents, not over one sinner that believes he was chosen to repent. Father, help us be people who celebrate grace. Let us be mindful. As best as we can, let's believe what the Bible teaches. But may it produce the fruits of the Spirit, not the Spirit of the fruitless. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. All right, thank you, sir. Back in Romans. Uh, we do have um, <clears throat> the ability for you to ask questions, so if you do, please be uh, swift in texting those to 240-623-8076. And we do have one question in, um, and the question is uh, twofold. Uh, does Romans 9 have anything to do with, does it have anything to do with individual salvation um, is there anywhere in the passage that relates at all to individual salvation? I don't think so at all. I don't think that. I think, I think individual salvation and the doctrine, I think, is imported in when you believe the doctrine of election from like a Calvinistic perspective. I don't think Romans 9 is about individual salvation at all. I think he's making a point. He uses individuals talking about Jacob and Esau, but I don't think that's his point at all. I think the point is that if the bigger picture point now, you can take that and apply it, 
I think there are other verses that are better for that, to be honest. I think there are other verses that are better for understanding how that plays out. I don't think Romans 9 is that verse. I think Romans 9 is making a point that the Gentiles are a part of conversion. That's a tension. Even Paul feels that struggle. Not necessarily the Gentiles are included, but that some Israelites are not. That was a big deal in his day. It's not a big deal to us because we just don't think like that. We didn't have those cultural dynamics, those religious dynamics. So I don't think that's what it's about at all. I don't. I think people, particularly if you have a Calvinistic bent towards election, then I think you look at every time the word election is used to, 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 to assume it means only this particular thing. But even in the Bible, when justification is used, it doesn't always mean made righteous before God. There are different contexts and different motives for why certain narratives are told and all of that. So I don't think Romans 9 is about individual salvation, but I think people can extrapolate from that a doctrine that the Bible does affirm in other places. Uh, you mentioned that, um, <clears throat> particularly from a Calvinistic perspective, that um, Romans 9 is applied to um, individual salvation. Could you, would you have any uh, guidance on how we can read our Bibles so that we do not import our theological uh, convictions into passages unnecessarily. So the, the, the first thing that I would say, and this is going to kind of sound like a duh, but so this is what I think, this is what I think happens. And because of the culture that we live in, we have access to information. And we trust particular men, which I think that's fine. But a lot of times we just believe things that have been told to us because other people believe it and it seems right. And then and we're not always cognizant of until something major happens, like a large part of the church believed that slavery was OK. Right. Turns out we were wrong on that one. Right. So, again, there, there, I think we need to really say, OK, let's read and see if I see this for myself. Like, what does this actually say? Not what have I been told that it said? And that's, that can be difficult. But I, like stuff like this, like let me give you an example. So like let's talk about the spirit, right? There's big contention over do the gifts of the spirit exist, right? And that thing has caused a lot of division in the church. You got the Pentecostals who, you got people who think if you don't talk in tongues, you're not even saved, right? You got all these different, this, this dynamic, okay? What does the Bible say? When it relates to salvation, what does the Bible say it means to be saved? We're going to see that in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, right, and believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, you are saved. Okay? Now do this. Next do this as an assignment. Look up in your Bible sound teaching or the word sound doctrine. Look those up in the Bible. And how much of those are about believing a theological reality or behaving according to what Jesus said? You will not find the word sound teaching or sound doctrine disconnected from behavior. In fact, 2 Peter 1.10 even takes the concept of election and applies it behaviorally when it says, let us make our calling and election sure, right? So even the theological concept of being chosen has to be applied behaviorally. So uh, this is a deep question for me because now it goes into pre-enlightenment theology and all that type of stuff. So I'll just say this. I think Ask yourself how important, first of all, start with, does this affect my salvation? Now, I know that for some people it's a big deal, but let me ask you this. 
if I believe that I was chosen or chose God, does that rival Jesus is Lord, that he rose from the dead and he died on the cross and rose from the dead for my sin, that I have to obey him? Does, those, does any of those things rival that theology? Those, those are the most important things in the Bible. It's not how you believe, but how you behave. Who you believe in and how you behave is what the Bible is important. So I just think you have to ask, you have to start with salvation. What does the Bible call for me to be saved? What must I believe to be saved? And there are some things that like you can not have to necessarily agree with. I think that things that are salvation, obedience, those things are morality, those things you have to, we have to be on the same page. But there are some things that I think, man, if we just really read and be like, okay, wait a minute. Is this what it's actually saying, or have I just believed this because it's a theological tradition? I believe in the doctrine of election, no question, that God chooses before the foundation of the world, no question, I believe that. I just don't think it applies in some of the ways that people apply it. And I don't think that the Bible demands that I have to believe that in order to be saved. I don't think so. I don't think you have to believe that you were, and I think the Bible teaches some things that are more mysterious than we give it credit for. I'll say this lastly, what I was talking about, about post- Post-Enlightenment theology, and when the Enlightenment happens, right, you get this idea of reason, science, and philosophy, right? Those become more authoritative than, like, faith. Faith is mocked. Even Satan becomes this little red dude with a pitchfork and a long tail, right? He just, it's all just humor. It's all just, like, Christianity's stupid. Now, who believes in faith? It's reason, science, and philosophy. And in the church age, what you get is, okay, we need to, we need to make sure that we hold on. It's, it's a war going on. So I think, and I'm actually, I can prove this, but I'm not going to do it now because it's a different thing, that a lot, of, a lot of the theology that came out of the church was based on the scientific method of proof more than faith. And so what you do is you're trying to bring resolutions to things that the Bible is mysterious about. So now you're having conversations about did God decree this and decree that and did, did this and that and is that. And it's like the Bible doesn't answer those questions significantly. So you're bringing resolution to something the Bible doesn't. You cannot escape the fact that God chooses people to believe, but you cannot escape the fact that there is an emphasis on people believing that doesn't describe God chosen to believe. There's, there's a lot more mystery in this, but we got to resolve all of this because we got to prove this. And it's like, listen, there are some things that are resolved for mystery, and that's okay. That's okay. I'm not saying everything is mysterious. No, all theology is mysterious, but there are some things where God said, look, the deep things belong to me, right? <laughs> Deuteronomy 29, look, it's some stuff that I ain't explaining to you. I mean, all honesty, Jesus being fully God and fully man still blows me away. That's so much more important to me than whether I chose God or were chosen by God. That belief doesn't really matter in terms of my life. Maybe if I think I was chosen, I'm not going to follow. Okay, maybe that may give me some hope, but I still got to obey, right? Like, I still have to persevere to the end. It doesn't say persevere to the end unless you don't believe you were chosen. The Bible says persevere to the end, and those who do prove their salvation. We still got to live this stuff out. But what's happening, what I see happening is there's so much argumentation over people. And I really, uh, really I watched this debate on, on free will and election the other day, and these are theologians, big dogs, and they were arguing, yelling at each other. And I just thought, Wow, fam, why are you so offended? Like, even if one of you are wrong or everybody, one of you is right, and what, like, why are you so offended? This doesn't, anyway. So, I hope that answers the question. <laughs> I just think we're just offended at the wrong things and for the wrong reasons. 
And I think in that offense, we're actually offending God because we're unloving to our brothers. And I think like, ah, there's some things we have to be on the same page about. We have to be on the same page that Jesus is Lord, that he died on the cross and rose from the dead, and that there, we have to be on the same page with morality. We can't determine, okay, well, I think this is, I think this is good, I think this isn't. We, can't, we gotta be on the same page. But then there are other things like, ah, should I baptize my son? Should I do this, should I do that? What, what's my, what should I believe that Jesus is coming back? Some of those things are like, ah, I'm gonna persevere to the end. And if it's my end or his return, I'm just trying to believe to the end. If he keeps me and preserves me, sweet. He's getting the glory regardless. Whether you believe God chose you or that you were chosen, that you chose him, you still couldn't believe unless he allowed you to do it anyway. You still couldn't believe unless he provided salvation. He gets the glory no matter what. And I think we, we just get into some of these theological arguments to try to show that we're mature. And in our maturity, we end up acting outside of the will of God and the fruits of the spirit, which show that we're immature. And that's what I'm concerned about. All right, this one will be uh, the last question. Um, how do we approach conversations in which a non-Christian asks, so am I going to hell? How do we present the concept of God and his authority in discussions with people who are not of the kingdom? So I, so I don't know if this is what the person is getting at, but I'll say evangelist, evan, election is not an evangelistic doctrine. What does the Bible say? Matthew 18, he said, look, go out in all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of, you, t- you tell people they got to believe in Jesus. You don't tell people, well, you have to believe, but if you do, that he actually chose you to believe, and if you don't, he may have chosen you for that too. So what do you think? That's not what you do. You just, you just, tell, you got to believe in, that's what the Bible did. That's what Jesus said. That's what Paul said. Do you notice, why, why is Paul affected that they don't believe? Why is he hurt by that? Why is he hurt? Because Paul still believes that their choice and their decision matters. Paul's not thinking, oh, they weren't chosen to believe before the foundation, so I'm good. I, if, if Paul felt like that, then he wouldn't be struck because he knows, hey, this is God. I, I'm with whatever he says. Paul's hurt because he's like, man, why does he go? He reasons with the, he reasons. Let me go into the synagogue. Let me reason with these folks. Let me reason with these folks. That's why he spends so much time, the time he does spend developing this doctrine of election. He's the only one who talks about it, and he only talks about it. It's in Ephesians. It's in Colossians and it's in Romans. I don't think it's as I don't think this doctrine is as important in the Bible as it is today. I don't think it was meant to fight over and all this stuff. I think it was meant to just say, hey, and these people didn't really struggle with it. In fact, there are no heresies in the early church that deal with chosen or choice. Were you chosen by God or did you choose God? There's no heresies in the early church that dealt with this issue. So when we're thinking about talking to a non-Christian, it's the same as it always is. It's like, hey, here's what Jesus did, and here's why he did it. And this is what you have to believe. And it's the Romans 10. You want them to confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in their heart that he rose from the dead, and they will be saved. That's what we tell people. That never changes. All the other stuff, you can build on that, and it's helpful. It's helpful. But is it necessary for salvation that you believe some of these things? I don't think so. I don't think so. Because if that's the case, if some of this stuff is necessary, we're in big trouble. Because there's too many different kinds of people. So where, where do we determine what's necessary? Should we baptize babies or not? Is that necessary? Is there a musical liturgy? Like, where do we, where's the line drawn of what's necessary apart from believing in Jesus, that he rose from the dead, that he's Lord, that he rose from the dead, and then we obey him? What does he say do? What are his commandments? 
I, I think that's where a lot of the, the, the drama is.